Hey, Grace Church. Uh, my name is John Sears. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to say happy Thanksgiving. This is my last chance to do it this year, so happy Thanksgiving to each of you guys. I hope you had a good time. Uh, raise your hand uh, loud and proud if you ate too much over the holiday. Anybody else? Uh, anybody still in a turkey coma or anything like that? Uh, I, I ate more calories than what I think I've burned the whole year leading up to this week. It's like, it's insane. Like I felt guilty, but that lemon meringue pie was unbelievable. And so was the uh, banana, uh, the, the banana pudding. And so was the, I didn't actually eat any turkey. It was just pie after pie after pie. I had my appetizer pie, my main course pie, my dessert pie is what I had. And I have leftover pie. Uh, yeah. And then I stayed home for Good Friday. Uh, raise your hand if you went Good Friday shopping because you do drugs. I'm just checking. No, okay, I don't know how many. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't do the Good Friday thing because I think that's insane. Uh, the bane of my existence is bad traffic. And, and so, so uh, uh, Black Friday would be my kryptonite. Uh, I would lose my religion uh, and I would swear that I'm not even lying. You don't even know. You don't even know. My kids know, but you don't know because you've never been in a car with me in traffic. Uh, my in-laws flew in last week on a Saturday, uh, in, or excuse me, on Friday. Friday, Friday or Saturday, I can't remember, uh, but uh, it was during, oh, it was Friday because it was during rush hour. They landed at five and I was like, uh, take the train. I love you, but not that much. <laughs> or Uber and I'll pay you back. I'll gladly pay you $52 for me not to have to sit in four hours of tra traffic. It drives me absolutely not. Anyway, that's the reason why I don't go uh, on, on Black Friday, um, but it gets crazy from here until Christmas, doesn't it? It gets, it gets absolutely uh, in, insane. Um, everything that the season is supposed to bring about is something that we're fighting to get, and it stays just beyond our reach. Um, this is the time of year where we're expecting, we've got such high hopes for Christmas, right? Uh, we expect to operate out of this, this overflow of love and generosity and compassion for people, but I have the hardest time maintaining that, that beautiful attitude towards the others um, when it comes to the happiness full or half empty kind of a person. I got nothing in my cup at all for most of this. Like I don't have enough to even say it's half of anything. Um, but cause it's, it's just, it's just, it's just not there. It's, it's unbelievably, uh, uh, difficult, uh, to be, um, positive. The, the whole time, and uh, I think we have such high expectations for Christmas that uh, it's, easy, it's easy to be disappointed. It's probably not a surprise to you uh, that there are more suicides around uh, December 25th than any other single date of the entire year. Did you guys know that? Uh, my own uncle committed suicide on that day, and it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with Christmas. It just had everything to do with family conflict. It's just that those holidays, when everybody gets together, is when like, it's like a perfect storm for relational conflict if, if that stuff, if, if you come into this season with unresolved uh, con conflict. Uh, when it comes to uh, this season that we're in right now at the beginning here, like in right, right at the beginning of this Christmas season coming out of Thanksgiving, um, I saw a meme uh, this past week on Instagram. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys spend way too much time looking at memes. I'm one of those guys. Uh, I like to waste a lot of time on my cell phone just scrolling through uh, Instagram looking at, at stupid memes. But one of them said, uh, only in America would we have a day set aside to be grateful for everything we already have immediately followed by a day dedicated, <laughs> right, to materialism and the desire for more. Right? 
And it leaves us wishing it was, it was a little bit different is, is what it does. Um, but I, I think, uh, do you remember that movie, Hope Floats? Does anybody remember that movie? Uh, it's an older movie. It's got Harry Connick Jr. in there. Anybody know who Harry Connick Jr. is? Like that's, I just dated myself by even saying his name, I think. Uh, but there's this, there's this scene in, in the movie, and it's, it's, it's a really, really good movie. And that little girl, when she cries, when her daddy leaves her, is like one of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen in any movie of, of all time. But at the very end of the, of the movie, the little girl uh, looks up and she holds her grandmother's hand and she said, my cup is running over. Do you know what I mean by that? My cup is running over where your heart is so full for no reason at all. You almost want to cry out of happiness, right? Like that's, that's joy. The difference between happiness and joy, they say, is that happiness is a response to external circumstances. The problem with happiness is that it's hit or miss. It's the luck of the draw. You got to be lucky. It depends on luck. Like if everything happens my certain way, then I'm happy. If something happens that's funny and makes me laugh, then I'm happy. But I have ze- I'm, I'm passive. Like I'm, I don't get to be proactive when it comes to happiness. And, and what makes joy different is that joy is a reaction to internal circumstances. I can control that. Happiness is dependent on, on you doing for me what I was expecting you to do. Happiness is dependent on me getting my way. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do what I want you to do. If you're in my family, you should always do what I want you to do. So, <laughs> I was going to say, so daddy's always happy, but we know that's not the key to a happy family because we know happy wife, happy yeah, it's, it's all on the mama. It really is. Like, you, could, you mamas, you set the thermostat in our home, right? And you get your hand on it all the time. Like, huh? 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 We should treat you better. I know. You're the one who, who's got that, that dial. But, but it's that, that joy, I think. I, I don't know that I can always be happy. I, I, I think that that's, you can't always be on the mountaintops. And it's, you know, when you go through the valleys that you appreciate, blah, 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 and all the other memes about pretty pictures and stuff on people's postcards and Hallmark cards. But, but I, I, think, I think joy is something that I, I actually can have on a consistent basis. And what if I told you that it was God's plan for you to live the rest of your life, regardless of the circumstances around you, with your cup full. Do you know anybody like that? Like, you, you know somebody who, like, the poop hits the fan on them, and they just, they, they seem, their life seems to be coated with Teflon. And, and it's not that they have perfect lives, far from it. What impresses you so much with them is that they go through so much crap, but they go through it so well. You know anybody? When we first moved into the building here in Avon, there was a lady named Michelle Fatal, and right as we were getting into the thing, she found out that she had stage four cancer. She was supposed to die within a couple of months, and she volunteered to be our project manager. <laughs> and she's supposed to die at any moment, right? Like, I, I don't know. And I, I love, I, she, when I think of who's the best picture of joy you've ever known in your entire life, I think of Michelle Fatal. Her whole body filled with cancer, months to live. She ends up living like two and a half years after that. Her husband reached out to me after they had moved to South Carolina because that's where their kids lived and she wanted to, be, she wanted to die near her family. Uh, he said that he believed that it was in part because the project here in this location kept her busy and preoccupied that she was able to keep like a, a healthy mental attitude. But I, I, I think he's selling her a little bit short on that because it was, it was so much deeper than that for her. Like it... 
Like this chick was centered. You know what I mean by that? She was centered. Like there's like, like almost like Zen, but I'm, I'm not like Jesus is not, I'm not, this is not a Zen sermon. But that attitude, that the idea of Zen, right? Like that, that idea of being in, like there being peace in the middle of the hurricane. You know, there's the eye of the hurricane where there's, there's like clear skies and, and like I grew up in Florida. So I've been through a few hurricanes and one time the eye passed over my house and my mom and dad pulled us out. We'd been in the, the house in a closet actually for two hours where it's the safest and they pulled us outside when the eye went over us. So we could, like, it was weird. Like the birds weren't chirping. Uh, there was no wind. It was like clear skies, right? But w- you knew like two miles in any direction. It was, it was total chaos. And, and that's, that's joy is, is when like it doesn't matter what's happening on the, on the outside, right? Like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter the, the amount of money you, you have or, or don't have or the, the, the security that you find in your employment or the way your family loves or doesn't love in return or responds or doesn't respond to your generosity. It's like those things don't drive the way you ride through life, right? That, that peace, that joy. There's an entire book of the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote where he lays out the secret to living with your cup full. That's, that's what I want. I, I, I want. I don't want to be dependent on whether or not you let me cut in in traffic when I rode on the shoulder to get past you because you, you weren't using your blinker and you're driving me. Nah, sorry. I, the problem with traffic is everybody drives as aggressively as me. I think that's the problem. When I lived in the South, I could bully people on the highway. Up here, we're all bullies. And that's the problem, right? But it's, it's living with my cup full. Like, there's a whole book of the Bible where I believe God tells you, this is how I want you to live all the time. Like, whether or not you have the money you hoped you would have or the job that you hoped you would have or got into the school that you wanted to get into or whether or not the person that you loved loved you back. I want you to be able to ride through any kind of rough terrain with the kind of shocks that keep you centered and peaceful on the inside. I, right? That's, that's, that's what I want. I think God wants that for you also. If you've got your Bible, why don't you go to Philippians. We're doing a series for the next four weeks on the book of Philippians. There's four chapters. Each week we'll cover a different chapter in the book of Philippians. It's, it's written by the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, very famous guy, who was actually not unlike the rest of the disciples. He wasn't raised in Israel. He was raised in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey is where, where he was raised. Uh, but he was still on, on, uh, in, in the, the Middle East, I guess, or would that be Asia? The Asian con- continent is, is what that, that is. Uh, but but uh, uh, Paul was, was raised up there in, in modern-day Turkey. He uh, has an experience with God where he recognizes that in his attempt to earn God's favor uh, by being a good enough person, he realized that he was actually working against what God was trying, had already done for him. Um, that no matter how much good he would ever do, he could never be innocent in the eyes of God. And truthfully, if you've made one mistake, you're, you're not innocent either. And when we stand before God on Judgment Day and he says, are you innocent or guilty? We'll all have to say the same thing. Innocent or guilty of breaking my laws and being selfish towards your fellow man? All of us will have to say that we're, we're guilty um, 
uh, and, and, and if God is good, he can't let guilty people off, off the hook. But because he's love, he would let an innocent person take your place. But there's nobody here who's innocent. There's only one person who's ever lived uh, innocent of breaking God's laws and being selfish towards his fellow man, and it's Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was offering his life as a payment, his life as, as the innocent, in, in the place of those of us who are guilty. Now, if Jesus is just a man, then his one innocent sacrifice would cover the guilt of, of one guilty man. But if Jesus is what the Jewish prophets said that he was, the Holy One of Israel, the, the baby who'd be born unto us, the son who would be given, who'd be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father as a baby, if Jesus is God as man, then one God's life would be worth every man's life, right? So that's why Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection matters so much to all, all of humanity. When Paul, as a Jewish religious leader, stopped seeing Jesus as a threat to his Jewish identity and started seeing Jesus as the fullness or the completion of the promise that God had made to Abraham that through him all the world would be blessed, he, he repented of his own personal contribution towards sin and brokenness and began following the ways of Jesus. And what he does next is he goes, he disappears, according to the book of Galatians, for about 10 years. And we don't have a record of anything that's happening there, but other than he's being mentored by a guy named Barnabas, who was a follower of Jesus. So he's being mentored by somebody else who knew Jesus more closely. At the end of that time, he comes back to Jerusalem. He, he meets the disciples, the, the ones who were followers of Jesus, uh, person to person. And to confirm that what he'd been taught about the scriptures were true, and they affirm this. He then moves to Antioch, which is just a little bit outside of, of Judea. And it's more of a half-Jewish, half-Roman city. And that's where the church becomes very diverse, meaning that it's not just of all different nations, different colors, different races, and different religious backgrounds. And, and you can read all this in the book of Acts. And then Paul and his buddy Barnabas are then chosen uh, by God's Spirit and then affirmed by the rest of that church in Antioch to travel outside of, of the Middle East there and give everybody the opportunity to turn from their brokenness and follow the ways of Jesus. So he spends the next two years doing that where he's most familiar, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's where he grew up. He knew all the trade routes through there. He was a businessman. He made tents, which was a very popular... Everybody needed them if you traveled. Uh, in fact, a lot of the people of the world at that time lived in tents, Right, especially the more nomadic uh, people groups. So it was a, it was a it was a business in high demand. Uh, so no doubt he he knew all of the trade routes through Asia Minor, and he spends a couple of years uh, traveling, starting churches. He's essentially what modern day followers of Jesus would refer to as a missionary. Goes to another country and he starts churches, and then he hands them over to people in those communities that he had trained to to teach the ways of Jesus. And then he comes back to Jerusalem with some questions about, does, do Gentiles now who become a follower of the Jewish Messiah have to pick up Jewish customs? Uh, that, was the, that was the conversation. That, that was, and that's a legitimate question. Because there were Jews who were traveling with Paul who were saying, do we, need, do we, do we teach them how to be Jewish now? Or, like, so there was like some confusion on that. Uh, after, after Paul uh, gets that settled, turns out that no, they're, they're not Jewish. Uh, in, in fact, they're, they're just followers of Jesus. They can be themselves. We'll just ask you to do this. Remember the poor and don't eat meat that's strangled and, and don't eat blood. Those, and the only reason that is because those were like highly offensive to their Jewish friends. 
and, and other followers of Jesus that would be in their, their gatherings, their, their, ch- their churches. Um, so that was just out of deference uh, to the opinions of other people. Don't, don't be blatantly offensive. Uh, oh, and be sexually pure is one of the other things that they, they, they said. That actually had biblical basis, both in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures. Sorry. But, but when he goes back is, is where Philippians comes in. So now he's on like his second trip. And, and he's now going to go into the, the western side. So Turkey then was divided up between Asia Minor, which was eastern Turkey, modern-day eastern Turkey, and then Asia, which was western Turkey, believe it or not. Um, and that's, that's where he was going to go. Uh, and you can read this in Acts chapter 16. And, and when he goes back, uh, he's traveling up towards modern-day Istanbul, which is the land bridge into Europe, and, and he's on his way there, and he stops by one of the churches he had already started, and that's where he picks up Timothy, uh, a guy that he begins to mentor. And then he wants to stop in that region and, and the region in between there and Istanbul to, to start churches. But God's Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, says, I want you to keep going. I don't want you to stop. So they keep going until they get to uh, Troas. And it's you know, ancient Troy and modern day Troad is, is what it's called. It's, it's far, 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 far west. And, and then he waits for God and, uh, to just kind of give him some direction. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. He says, yeah, I think I want to go here and God's Holy Spirit, for, in whatever way communicated to him, that's not your next move. And while he's waiting, he has a dream. And in this dream, there's a guy from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, and uh, the part of Greece that goes kind of up over the Aegean Sea. Uh, that, that's Macedonia. And there's a guy there in this dream that says, please come tell us. Then they wake up the next morning, and then the writer of Hebrews says, then we. Now, here's what's really cool, if you're into history at all. Uh, that from Acts, Acts 1 to 15, uh, the, the, uh, Luke, uh, the physician that traveled with Paul, is the guy that wrote the book of Luke. Or excuse me, he wrote the book of Luke, and he, and he wrote the book of Acts. Uh, but 1 through 15, it's always they, 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 they. Talking about Paul, they, and then talking about the disciples, they. When it gets to Acts 16 and they get to Troas... And then from there, God calls them to go into modern-day Greece and into uh, Macedonia. From then on, uh, Luke says, then we, then we, then we, then we, then we, then we. So we know that it's also at that pit stop where the Apostle Paul picks up his lifetime buddy and personal physician, Luke, who then starts traveling with him. They, by ship, uh, go across the Aegean Sea, actually this way for you, goes across the Aegean Sea, and then they, they, they land in, in Philippi. And, and Paul goes into Philippi and uh, stays for a couple of days. Uh, and then he, he comes outside the city to meet uh, with a Jewish prayer group. Um, because at this point, Caesar had already declared that Jews and Christians were both, that's uh, uh, Jews and those who followed the Jewish Messiah, uh, Jesus, were now undesirables in the Roman Empire and could not congregate in Roman cities. So when the Jewish people of a community wanted to get together, they would have to go outside the gates of the city to do this. So there was a women's prayer group that was meeting down by the river. Paul was expecting there to be men and women. He goes to this prayer group, finding only women there. He and his crew uh, you know, showed up to pray with them, and they asked questions. They began talking to them about Jesus. And, and in talking to them about Jesus, Lydia is one of the ladies who becomes a devoted follower of Jesus. The Bible says, and then her entire household, so her husband and her kids, are then given the opportunity to hear what she had just heard at the Bible study. They accept Jesus. 
uh, as their rescuer for their personal brokenness. They're then baptized. Uh, and then Paul keeps going back to this prayer group every, every Sabbath day uh, to talk to them about the ways of Jesus. And this group is starting to grow. On, on his way there, this is all in Acts chapter 16. On, on his way there on a particular day, there's this woman, crazy woman, who's been following him. The Bible says that she's demon-possessed, and, and I, don't, I can't explain this to you, but she can kind of, she can tell the future. That's, it's in the Bible. That's what she could do. She was demon-possessed, and I, I don't know. Don't ask me to explain that. Uh, I, I can't. I don't have any answers for you. It's just what the Bible says, but she's demon-possessed. But anytime she would see Paul walking by her, she would then say, these men are from God, these men are from God, because the demon in her knew God's spirit in them, and like he knew. And so she'd stop for, fortune-telling and would start talking to everybody around about Jesus. And this ruined the business for the guys that she was a slave. Uh, who, and then the guys who owned her that were making money off of her fortune-telling uh, got angry and uh, caused a riot. And Paul and Silas are then thrown in prison. While they're in prison, uh, they begin praying and singing worship songs. Uh, all the prison listens to them singing songs to God. And that night, about midnight, uh, the jailer, uh, nobody's awake, or excuse me, nobody's asleep. They're all, Paul and Silas won't shut up. They keep singing songs about God. And there's an earthquake. And during this earthquake, all, everybody's doors to their jail cells pop open and the shackles fall off. And, you know, there's, it's dark in the dungeon. They're, they're not electricity. I'm sure you probably figured that out way back then, right? The jailer calls for a light, and, and he's about to commit suicide because he's a Roman soldier. And he knows that if he lets a soldier, uh, if he lets a prisoner escape, the punishment for letting a prisoner escape is, is death. So now that the jail's just been wrecked by this earthquake, he thinks he's lost prisoners, and he's going to kill himself. But Paul had talked everybody into staying in jail uh, because homeboy's a ninja is how he did that. Uh, and then when the jailer realizes that Paul... Uh, was an honorable man. He asked him questions about the songs that he was singing. Paul gets an opportunity to tell him the same things he had told Lydia, the lady by the river, and the jailer becomes a devoted follower of Jesus. Paul gets invited back to his house. He tells his whole family about what Jesus had done on our behalf. They become devoted followers of Jesus. And here's what's crazy. God uses that entire experience that comes from a dream in ancient Troy, right? God starts the very first church in all of Europe, and he does it with a Jewish girl and her family who are persecuted by the Roman soldiers and a Roman soldier who got paid to do the persecuting. God changes them both, puts them together, and starts this church of Philippi. This church then begins growing like crazy and funds Paul's mission trips from then on for the rest of his life. They were financial partners of everything that Paul did. Ten years later, Paul's now in prison in Rome, and he's less than two years away from being beheaded by Caesar for not shutting up about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. If this is too much history, I, I apologize. But this is, this, is, this is, and during those ten years, Paul had been beaten so many times, twice he was left for dead, they were 100% convinced nobody could survive that. He'd gone through all kinds of other different tortures, had, had been homeless, had been shipwrecked, had been starving, had been well-fed, had gone through everything. He gets to the end of his life, and then he says, it's less than two years, this is the very last epistle he writes to any church. 
The only thing he wrote after this is First and Second Timothy and Titus, but those were personal letters to personal guys he was mentoring. This is the last letter he writes to any church, and he says, you guys have been with me. You're my day one church. You're my crew. You've been with me from the beginning. You're the best picture of the best things that God can do with broken people. You guys are it. And I want you to know that through all of the crap I've been through in my entire life and all the horrible things I did before I was a devoted follower of Jesus and all of the horrible things that people did to me since following Jesus, my joy has been full and I wouldn't trade a single stinking thing and I want to give you the secret to that. It's my last gift to you. And that's what this letter is. This is Paul's secret to living your entire life in a broken world with your cup full. And with what little time we have left, we're going straight to Philippians chapter 1 to see what the secret is. If you've got your Bible, go there. Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, in the first half of the chapter, he says there's three truths that you have to accept as true. There are three things, three assumptions that I make. In verse 4, Paul says this, Wherever I, whenever I pray, I make my requests, requ requ sorry, I have a speech impediment from second grade. That comes back all the time. My requests, your requests. I make my requests. My name is Sean Seals. That's how I used to say it. I'm ready. I'm ready to go to school. Sorry, I don't need to give you all of that. That's embarrassing. Um, I make all of my, listen, when I talk to God through, through all of this, whenever I'm praying, I, I mention you, and, and, and I'm full of joy in, in, in all of this. And there's, there's three assumptions that I make that make it possible for me, if I'm being tortured, for my cup to be full. If I'm starving, my cup is full. If I'm shipwrecked on a deserted island, my cup is full. If I'm riding on a donkey, if I'm riding on a horse, if I'm riding in a chariot or a wagon or walking because I can't afford any of those things. In all of those things, I'm, my cup is full because there's three assumptions I make. And we're going to look at those briefly. Verse 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the first truth. The first truth is this. Paul recognized that he didn't belong to himself. That's the first thing that you and I have to come to terms with. And I don't think that that's even true for all of us. But it's one of the preconditions to having joy is recognizing that this life, my life, isn't about me. The world doesn't revolve around me because as long as you think it does, you're never going to have a full cup because people won't cooperate with that because they're operating as though the world revolves around who? Them. And so we live at odds with each other with competing values, right? Where I'm trying to get as much from them as they are trying to get from me. And that's, we experience that on a daily basis. That's the way this world operates. Paul says the first assumption I make in verse 1 is this. I am a slave to God. Verse 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy. And we are slaves of Jesus. I belong to God. I'm his. What that means is God can do with me what he wants. I don't belong to me. I don't have rights to myself. I voluntarily gave those rights to someone else. What that does is it allows people, it allows me to experience injustice without the need for revenge. Because I've now said I don't have rights. 
that don't belong to God. I'm his. If things go good, if things go bad, it's not my problem. It's his. I belong to him. There's another verse that says, he's the potter, I am the clay. What right does the pot have to say to the clay master, to the potter, what I should be used for? I didn't come up with the idea of me. If he wants to use me as a wash basin or a toilet bowl, that's his call. That was a weird reference. (laughs) They're both made out of pottery, though, or ceramic, right? That's inappropriate. That was the first thing I thought of. Sorry. Right. But to wash hands in or to flush poop out. Don't even matter. Because I don't belong to me. I belong to God. I belong to him. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, and this is a reference. Paul had actually written this about six years earlier. This letter that Paul had written to the church of Rome, which he hadn't visited at that time, um, had been been copied and circulated in all the churches all over the Mediterranean. We're now reading that letter, so it was very well known. And Paul's referencing something that he said in chapter 6 when he said, don't you realize that you become the slaves of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once all of us were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching that we have given you. What was the teaching? To turn from your sin, recognizing that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that pays off the debt that that sin created before a holy and righteous God and following him. Some of us, honestly, we're on this side of obeying that. We're on our own. We're disconnected from God, not from God's love, but from a relationship with God because we won't let go of the one thing that separates us from him, which is our own sin, right? He said, but you obeyed that teaching that I gave you. Thank God once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching that we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, but you need to know that you have now become a slave to righteous living. You and I are slaves to our default settings. We're slaves to different addictions. What's your addiction? What's the one sin? Paul refers to it in other places as a besetting sin, as the sin that so easily kicks your butt. What's the one brokenness in your heart that you can't seem to get away from? For some of you, it's anger. Like you, it just, whatever reason, dang it, you just can't get on top of that. For some of you, it's lust. It drives every decision you make and threatens the quality of every healthy relationship you've ever had. For some of you, it's greed. Just the never-ending passion and need to have more. Your, your, your addiction might be approval. You didn't get it as a kid, so now your pathway to that is success, whether that's seen vocationally or financially. I guess it wouldn't matter, but that's your addiction. You have an addiction. I know you do because you're broken just like me. What is it? Paul says our natural default setting is to be slaves to our unique brokenness. The only alternative to this is to choose a different master. You are going to be owned by something. It is either going to be by your craving for more or your craving ah, for more. You're craving for more stuff. You're craving for more of him. But you're going to be driven by one or the other. You choose your addiction. So the first truth, the first assumption Paul made is, I don't belong to me. 
You don't belong to you. You belong to what? You belong to lust. You belong to greed. You belong to what? Anger. You belong to something. What do you belong to? You have a master. What or who is your master? And the only alternative you have to that mastering you is to choose a better master. Paul says, I've made my choice. I don't belong to me anymore. Which brings me to the second assumption that Paul made. And that God began something new in me the day I chose to become his. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus mourns, or ret- returns. Uh, ten years later, uh, persecution had become more intense for this church, especially as they continued to grow, and they were no longer able to fly beneath the radar. So they started experiencing persecution. Some of the followers of Jesus from that church family were, were, were arrested. Some of them were tortured. Some of them were killed. And, and Paul says, listen, I want you to be able to have the same joy that I have. The first thing you need to do is you need to recognize you don't belong to you anymore. The second thing you need to realize is that God started something in you. Like he didn't rescue you from your broke, rescuing you from your brokenness was not the end goal for God. It was the beginning of the goal for God. But the day you turned from sin is the day that God says, now I'm going to start doing something with, with you. There's a, there's a quote from AA, and there's a lot of people in our church that are in recovery, and there's a lot more that should be, if I can put that in there. Thursday nights here at Grace Church, we have a group that meets at 7 o'clock. And if you're not in a group, it'd be awesome if you came to that. But there's a quote from AA that says this, I am not where I need to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. Right? That's what Paul says. You need to recognize you're not your own. And then when God made you his, he set in plan a purpose. He set in plan a purpose, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Jesus has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life begins. God didn't just rescue you from something. He rescued you for something, which brings me to the third assumption that the Apostle Paul makes, and that is that God uses everything that happens to me in my life for that something better that he's planned for me. Even the evil things in my life can be used for something holy. If nothing else then I'm an example of what God can do with such a broken person. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, but God had mercy on me so that Jesus could use me as an example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. In the verses before that, Paul had gone into detail about why he was such a broken person. And he says, but God rescued me for no other reason than to be an example of the kind of people that God can still love and rescue. And what he was talking about was the fact that his full-time job was arresting, torturing, and murdering followers of Jesus. It would be as... Okay, this... I don't, I'm, and I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul was the most threatening person to the early church as a devoted follower of the Sanhedrin. He was their hitman. That's what, he was a hitman. He was a hitman, and the only marks he took were followers of Jesus. So to the first church, he was the ultimate bad guy. And Paul said, when God looked at everybody to rescue from their brokenness, he picked the worst person. You are worth The question, <laughs> so he goes, I don't know how bad he, have you? Made money from killing Christians in churches, yes or no? 
If the answer is yes, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> if you have not done that, you're not as bad as the Apostle Paul. And if God can rescue him, then you're not too far gone. If nothing else, God can use the bad things in my life as a proof of how good he actually is. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So the three assumptions that the Apostle Paul makes is this. Number one, I don't belong to me anymore. Number two, God rescued me for a purpose. And number three, everything that I'm going through is going to work toward that purpose. That's the secret. That's where joy comes from. Joy is not the same as happiness. Joy isn't everything needs to go my way. Joy is the centeredness that Michelle had. Michelle Fatal. When she knew when she had stage four cancer, I'm still sucking air. God ain't done. And I'm God's. I could have died when I was 24 in a car accident. I didn't. I could have died when I was 50. With a heart attack, I didn't. And if I die now, I die now. I'm God's. He's got a plan for me, and just because I have cancer doesn't mean he's done with that. God's going to use cancer in my life too. Everything that ever happens to me, God's going to use to help me become the person that God rescued me to be. And truthfully, I would say more people came to faith in Jesus through the way she died than they ever came to faith in Jesus through the way she lived. Because of the joy this chick had, no matter what, so I can lose my job and find joy. How? Which I, I struggled with. I was going to say which I did. But I remember getting fired from my job with five weeks notice. And I really struggled with joy. Really, Because I was forgetting that I was losing the idea that God could even use that. But looking back on it, had I not lost my job, I would not have put 100% of my attention into pastoring and starting a church. Looking back, I wouldn't... While I was going through, Sean, would you want your job back? The answer to that question is yes. Having gone through it and seen what God actually did with that, I would not change it at all. My mom going through her abuse as a child, she says, while I would never want to go through that ever again, I wouldn't change that part of my story either. It has become the platform on which I stand to point other people to Jesus. That's where my mom's joy comes from. That's where joy comes from. It comes from that. What is God trying to do? My joy becomes the precondition for what matters most. And I'll show you that. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, 9 through 11. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, he says, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. So he says, I'm praying for three things. Number one, for your love to overflow, for you to grow in two things, knowledge and understanding. Those three things. For I want you to understand what really matters. What really matters? That your love overflows more and more. That you grow in your knowledge of God and his will for your life. And understanding in the way that you treat other people. That's what matters most. So that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this is what brings glory and praise to God. I'm going to say this. That joy is a precondition to your life bringing God glory and praise. Followers of Jesus who do not live their lives with full cups. Do not praise God. 
the testament to the greatness of God in your life is your ability and my ability to find a way for our cup to be full when life has gone to crap. And that comes from the recognition that I don't belong to me. God is doing something in me, and even the stuff I'm going through now will be used by him to get me there. He warns them that there's going to be two thieves that are going to rob them of that joy, which becomes the precondition. By the way, in between that joy and God's glory and praise is me loving more and more, growing in my knowledge of God and his will for my life, and treating other people with understanding. The two things that will rob me from this, he goes on to stay, say, is this. Jealousy, comparing myself to other people, and things people do to me. And tell me that isn't the two things that rob you of your joy. You comparing your life to somebody else's, or you focusing on what somebody has done, done to you. The antidote is in verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1, where he says, you need to remember that what they do and what they have, his words, doesn't matter. Has nothing to do with what God's trying to do in you. Has nothing to do. What they have and what they do doesn't matter. Your focus is on the wrong thing. When you're distracted by the storm around you, by the things that are happening to you that other people are causing, by the things that other people have that you don't have, you're losing sight of the fact that you are right now where God knew you would be right now. And you are right now not who you used to be, and by God's grace, you are not yet who you will become. That even this is working toward that. Final thoughts. Last three verses of the Bible, excuse me, of this chapter, or this, Philippians chapter 1, 27 to 30. Above everything else I've just said, above everything else, above all else, you must, gives us three things, live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus. Then there's a parenthetical thought. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I'll know that you're standing together, one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And here's the third thing above all else. Number one, live as citizens of heaven. Number two, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus. And number three, don't be intimidated. Don't let fear drive you anymore. Stop. Then he gives them three advantages. He says, this will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed and that you're going to be saved even by God himself for you have been given not only, and here's the three things that you've been given. You've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Jesus, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And the third thing you've been given is that we are in the struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past and you know that I am still in the midst of it even now because God isn't done with me yet. Live life remembering that this isn't your home and truthfully, we're distracted by our affection for more stuff on this side of eternity, aren't we? That's going to rob you of this. That's going to keep you from living your life with a full cup. We are preoccupied with the accumulation of stuff on this side of eternity. He says, you need to remember that you weren't made for this. This is the staging ground for everything that comes after this. 
Number two, conduct yourself worthy of being adopted by God. What did that look like? He already described that for us. Loving more and more, growing more in my knowledge about God and his will for me, and living with understanding toward those around me. And that third thing was don't be intimidated. Don't let fear drive you. Man up. Put one step in front of the other. I know you feel like quitting. Don't. That's a demonstration that God has lost track of you, and he hasn't. Don't. You keep moving. Lift your head. Quit your stupid pity party. Stop acting as though there is no God and that you're all alone. Because there is, and you ain't. Three cheat codes. Your advantages, you have Jesus. 1 John 4, 4, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won the victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. God gets the last say, not only in the world, but in yours as well. Number two, second advantage you have is suffering. It's an advantage. Because suffering isn't just inevitable, it's necessary. Suffering is necessary for me to become less dependent on stuff and more dependent on God. You're not going to be able to avoid this. Embrace the suck. <laughs> Jesus said that. <laughs> Embrace this. It's going to do something in you you could have never got to without it. Lean into the struggle. Don't run from it. Lean into this. James 1, 2 through 4, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it your greatest opportunity for what? Your cup being full. God's going to prove to you through this that you are his. He's got a plan, and this is part of it. And last, you have company. You're not alone. And if you are going through this alone, this is by your choice. You're sitting in a room full of people who are passionately turning from their own brokenness like you are, trying to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus like you are, and is learning to embrace the difficult as well as the good, trusting that even through the brokenness that happens to me, God will do something in me. And you were not intended to carry this burden alone. But as long as you just use church as a pick-me-up speech once a week, you show up late and sneak out early, not that those of you guys who sneak out early are running from God. You're just running from traffic, getting out of the parking lot. I get that. <laughs> but you're robbing yourself of your opportunity for partnership in this. And I don't know which one of these areas you're most broken in, but what I know is God is desperately interested in bringing joy into your world, but you have a part to play in this. Maybe you don't belong to God yet. Joy is an uphill battle for you. I get it. 
Those of us who've already turned from the brokenness that is in us have an advantage in that God's Holy Spirit is working in us to help us to become something that we're incapable of becoming on our own. So maybe your next step, honestly, is to stop running from God and turn to Him. Maybe your next step is to accept that only Jesus can take care of your brokenness and that your goodness can never undo it. Maybe you just need to tell God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I need you to rescue me from me. Maybe that's your next step. Or you may struggle with loving others. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? (laughs) Or maybe you've pushed God aside and you don't make any room for him. Or maybe, honestly, you don't live a life worthy of being called. Your life is not a pretty picture of what it looks like to live with Jesus in the middle of it. God will not force himself in. You have to let him. And when God's Holy Spirit points out sin in your life, you're the one who has to make the choice to let it go. He won't yank it out of your hands. You have to drop it. And that's something you get a chance to do right now. So if you would bow your head with me. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I love you that you love me even when I don't love you back. God, I'm thankful that you're not intending to keep your distance from any one of us. It's our sin that separates us from you. We're all alike in that way. And that's why you showed up in human history to take the punishment for that so that we could be made right with you. God, for those in this room who need to stop running from you and turn to you, I pray that they would do that now. If that's where you're at, then your prayer is, God, rescue me from my sin. Jesus, thank you for taking the punishment for it, for raising from the dead with new life to give me a new life. I want that. Do in me whatever you want to do so that you can do through me everything you've ever planned. Maybe your prayer then, if you've already become a follower of Jesus, is to re-recognize that, God, I belong to you. Forgive me for acting as though you belong to me or that you owe me or that you exist for my good pleasure. God, I am now recommitting myself to exist for your pleasure. I know you rescued me with an intention and a plan. Forgive me for all of the ways that I act like you've lost track of me. I know you haven't. I'm thankful that you have it. God, use what I'm going through now to help me become the person you always intended me to be. That's my prayer. Do in me whatever you want so that you can do through me whatever you want. And dear God in heaven, let my joy be full. This is what we pray in the name of Jesus and we all say together, amen.